Hello and welcome to Pause Pop, positively pop culture, where we talk about things we love enthusiastically and without guilt. I'm Katie B. Taylor. And I'm Carrie Gessner. And this week we're bringing you the first of two episodes talking about The Haunting of Bly Manor, plus a bunch of other versions of its source material, Henry James's novella The Turn of the Screw. And we have special guest Aaron Chandler here with us to discuss. Yeah, this was an absolutely great talk, and it it was so detailed, and I didn't want to cut anything that we're going to bring to you in two episodes. So we'll get to it, but before we do, big spoiler warning. (laughs) Bigger for Bly Manor, since it's way more recent than The Turn of the Screw, but we talk about all of the adaptations that we've seen. So if you don't want to be spoiled, might want to turn it off. Sorry. (laughs) (laughs) We couldn't couldn't talk about it without spoiling it. It was too rich to not discuss the end, so. Mm -hmm. All right, we are very excited to have our friend Erin with us. Erin, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit before we get, before we jump into Bly Manor and turn over the screw? Sure. Hi, I'm Erin. I have um, a PhD in English literature. I taught English for about eight years. So that's my my street cred on on the <laughs> critical analysis, I guess. And I'm a fan of the pod. Thank you. Thank we appreciate you. that. And I, I did want to ask, because I, I forgot to ask you, both of you, off air, you've both taught English classes in college. Have you yes. ever taught The Turn of the Screw? I have, yes. Okay. I used to teach it in a sophomore literature course. Sometimes I would teach it in conversation with the Aspern Papers, which is another of my favorite Henry James novellas. Um, but sometimes I would just teach it on its own. Yeah. And I think I actually also taught it in a women's studies through literature course. Oh, cool. I haven't. I almost did. When I first read it, my first thought was, I need to teach this. But it ended up... <laughs> <laughs> Not fitting in uh, to the class I had to teach. I think it would have been too much gothic stuff. So I taught Beloved instead. Okay. Has either of you read it for for college class? I read it for one of my first graduate courses in my Master's of Arts in English grad program back in like so many years ago <laughs> that I will not age myself too much. And that's when I fell in love with it read it as the example book for a book uh, for a class on literary theory. And uh, we used Terry Eagleton's literary theory and introduction to read Turn of the Screw through like five or six different schools of literary thought. Wow. Yeah, it was intense. That sounds cool, though. Yeah. Okay, that's very cool. Because I actually only read it the first time for the first time last year. So I feel like I'm a little bit behind you guys. But I'm catching up. There's a lot that we can talk about. So we, I wanted to talk about specifically The Haunting of Bly Manor, but since we're all English people, lit people, I feel like we couldn't really not talk about The Turn of the Screw, which is it's based on. And then there are also multiple adaptations, other adaptations of it. And I feel like those would be cool to bring in if we can. I know I've watched The Turning. Oh, we've all watched The Innocence. Mm-hmm. I, I think there are a couple, there are bunch of other adaptations. Have you guys watched any other ones? No. Okay. I watched one, actually a few, well, now it's probably back when I was in that class. I think I rented it out of (laughs) curiosity. Also saying rented it is also another (laughs) aging of me thing. It was just called The Turn of the Screw. It's from 1992. 
and it was directed by Rusty Lemerand. I don't think he went on to do much <laughs> else. And it was with Patsy Kensett and Julian Sands. Hmm. And it was very faithful, except that it was set in the 1960s. Interesting. I See, I find yeah. that really interesting because The Turning was set in the 1990s. Bly Manor set in the 1980s. And I just think it's interesting when people play with time periods. But we'll get to that, I think. Maybe. I don't know. There's, <laughs> there's a lot to get to. So do we want to start with Bly Manor or do we want to start with The Turn of the Screw? Maybe it would make sense to start with The Turn of the Screw a little bit, since Bly Manor is an adaptation of that. Yeah, I think so. Kind of lay the groundwork. Yeah. Erin, would you like to give us an overall synopsis of The Turn of the Screw? Yes. So The Turn of the Screw is about, it takes place within sort of an incomplete frame narrative. We get an introduction that doesn't close back up at the end of this guy who's telling a ghost story. He's promising a ghost story that involves children which is going to is supposed to make it extra creepy. And he tells this story of a governess who goes out to this isolated manor, Bly Manor, to take care of two children whose parents have died. And in the recent past, both their previous governess and a man who was working for their uncle and guardian have also died. And she starts seeing and experiencing things in the manor that lead her to believe that it's haunted by these two people and that they are possessing the children. Okay. One thing I want to point out is that, and we'll talk a lot about this because it it really kind of bothers me, but the turn of the (laughs) screw really does hinge on ambiguity. Yes. Because it runs throughout. You don't even really know who the governess is because it's told secondhand and she doesn't have a name. It's a first person narrative. Mm -hmm. Miles, the boy, gets sent home from school early on and you don't find out why exactly that happened, except that he was having trouble with the other kids. And you don't ever really know if the ghosts were real, which really Mm -hmm. kind of bugged me (laughs) because I was like, (laughs) I went in, I was like, yes, ghost, real. And then I talked to KW about it, and she was like, actually, there's this whole theory that, you know, it's all in the governess's head. So mm-hmm. what do you guys think? What are what are your theories on the ghosts, I guess? I have to say that the ambiguity is what I loved about it the most. So I bought, I have this really cheap Dover Thrift edition of The Turn of the Screw, and I still remember reading it all in one night. It's not very long. It's like in this edition, it's like 87 pages. But I started it at like 10 or 11 o'clock. And so there was a point where I almost stopped reading it, put it down, turned off my light and couldn't stop thinking about it. So I picked it back up (laughs) and stayed up until like 3 a.m. finishing it. (laughs) Because when I started, I, I knew that it was famous as this book with an unreliable narrator that was that was like the one thing that I knew about it and as I started reading it I kind of like Carrie was like well who says this isn't a straight-up ghost story there's nothing here that that would you know really negate that this isn't just a ghost story and then I really vividly remember hitting this point where I just went oh oh no <laughs> and the whole rest of the book was just like watching this train wreck of oh no (laughs) because for me the narrator started to seem 
very unreliable in the way that Carrie, you and I were talking about this mm-hmm. while we watched The Innocents, the way she just kind of jumps to conclusions and draws conclusions that she decides to stick to no matter yeah. what, when possibly what she's experiencing could have other explanations. Mm-hmm. So that's that was the part that was really intriguing about it for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah, same. I I I love that Henry James' work is full of stories like this. I mentioned the Aspirin Papers earlier, and that's another one where you don't get any closure. My students found that so frustrating, but I loved watching that frustrating. <laughs> and I think that one of the themes of a lot of his work, he doesn't, he didn't only write horror. He did write some horror and some gothic stories and, and things that were like vaguely uncanny. But I think even in his straightforward literary fiction, he was very interested in ambiguity, lack of closure, leaving things very frustrating. And we could probably psychoanalyze him a bit. But <laughs> I think that he wanted to write a story that you could read either way. And it's so masterfully yeah. done. Yeah. So it's it's definitely the reason why it gets analyzed so much is because it is this very open-ended thing and you can apply a lot of different types of literary theory to its interpretation. Yeah. And I think that is what makes the adaptations so interesting because you do sort of have to make those choices. Like, are you going to go with the unreliable narrator? Are you going to go with the idea that this is all in her head? Or are you going to go with the idea that the ghosts are real? And if you try to if you try to preserve the ambiguity, how do you convey ambiguity on the screen? Because it doesn't necessarily play the same way as it does in a book. Yes. Right. So we watched The Innocence last night, which is on YouTube. I, I don't know if that's allowed, but they just... It's on there. <laughs> and immediately after it started playing a video that was the making of the movie. Mm-hmm. And <laughs> normally, like, I wouldn't really be interested in that just because I didn't I didn't actually love the movie. But I let it play because <laughs> I was just sitting there like taking in the ending. I was like, what? Oh, what, <laughs> what just happened? So it just automatically started playing. And one of the things that they brought up, which I thought was really interesting, was every time you see a ghost in The Innocence, you see... So Deborah Carr plays Miss Giddens, the governess, and you see, you always see, I think except for one time, you see her reaction first, and then you see the ghost. And that was the way they tried to put ambiguity into the film, because you're always seeing it from sort of from her perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's one of the reasons I think I, you can have criticism about that film, but it it is actually regarded as one of the best adaptations of Turn and Screw, perhaps because of that technique, because they did their best to build that ambiguity in a little bit better. I think Aaron is absolutely right that it's so hard to portray the concept of an unreliable narrator or mental illness in a film. It's really, really hard. If you're going to show what the person, what the protagonist is seeing, the audience is naturally going to believe them because they're seeing it too, mm-hmm. right? So to have that technique, I think that that film is pretty notable for trying it that way, which does make the audience question things a little bit. Definitely. I will add that I, I watched The Turning again last night, which is from 2000, 2020. <laughs> <laughs> and it stars Mackenzie Davis. 
I should watch that. I love her. She's great. I know. Yeah, that's the reason I wanted to see it and why I actually I made myself listen to the book before I, I went to see it. Okay, so it's written by Chad Hayes, and it's directed by Floria Sigismondi. And in that one, I really think that KW would like this. Uh-huh. The ambiguity is there, and they really do focus on the mental illness aspect. The governess is named Kate in this one, and they add in her mother, who she goes to see at a mental institution at the beginning. So it's very clear that mental illness runs in her family, and Mrs. Gross even makes, when she learns about it, she makes a point to bring that up, like, oh, I hope that doesn't run in the family. Well, that's She's real creepy. (laughs) I know, I know, yeah. (laughs) And throughout the film, like, every day, every night, I think she sleeps less, and every day she wakes up and she's, like, more ragged and, like, just, she does not look good by the end of the film. So I think you you kind of see this downward spiral in her appearance that is supposed to mirror the one that's in her head. And there are some instances where, like, she, when she finds out about Quint and Miss Jessel, she, like, sort of has this, not vision, she kind of sees what's happening and the ghost starts choking her and then Miss Gross comes in and all of that disappears. So you get the sense that oh. it's all just in her head. So yeah, but I think you would find that adaptation interesting. Cool. I want to mention there's a literary adaptation by Joyce Carol Oates from the early 90s. I think it was 1992. And it's called The Accursed Inhabitants of the House of Bly. And it's in her collection Haunted Tales of the Grotesque, which the whole collection is really good. But that really stuck with me as being taking the interpretation that the ghosts are 100% real. They're totally real. And it tells the story from their perspective. And it's incredibly kind of visceral and earthy and gross in some ways. And it's very much a kind of squeamish horror story. And I feel like the people who made The Haunting of Bly Manor had to have taken a little bit of inspiration from that. Because I think the way they make Miss Jessel very sympathetic in House of Bly or Haunting of Bly Manor is very present in Oates's story, that she's a lot more sort of not victimized, but that it's not that she and Peter Quint were these depraved weirdos who were trying to do terrible things, that they were also victims of the house's curse, too. Yeah, I could definitely see that. And I would be interested in reading that because one of the reasons I like Bly Manor so much is that it does lean into these ghosts are real. <laughs> mm-hmm. And you can't deny that that they're real. So I, I I do enjoy that aspect. Well, I think though in Bly Manor, if we can, if we want to, kind of segue to incorporating that in. Yeah. Yeah. For the first maybe, for the first few episodes, to an extent, I feel like that that ambiguity is still there. Mm-hmm. You see, Danny, the the au pair, the governess character, Danny Clayton, who's last name I think probably comes from the the producer director of The Innocents, Jack Clayton, is like visibly nervous, visibly anxious, clearly has something that has happened to her in her past that we don't find out full details of for a while that is literally and metaphorically haunting her. Mm-hmm. And and the the kids, you know, come off as weird. <laughs> <laughs> 
and you know they'll they'll say things that seem incongruous for kids to say in different ways and i think the show does a good job for like the, those first few episodes of building in this ambiguity of well is this because they've been through these traumatic experiences is this because of the way that peter quint and miss jessel kind of influence them the way that they're the way that they're influenced kind of lives on in the house through these kids like when miles says something about having to find the right keys mm. to things which is something that peter quint said to him or the way that flora picked up perfectly splendid which is her catchphrase from <laughs> miss jessel and the way that miles some like starts acting kind of pervy like <laughs> you 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 <laughs> you wonder <laughs> Is this something that he's doing because he was hanging out with Peter Quint and kind of idolized him? Or is this a creepy ghosty thing? And it's not, <laughs> that's not cleared up for a while. Yeah. So I feel like those elements are kind of there at the beginning, even though there are, you know, ghosts hanging around in the background to various extents, where you can question, like, to what extent is this, like, a, a psychological trauma thing to what extent is this a literal haunting thing mm -hmm. until you can't question that anymore right yeah. yeah and even even when the ghosts of the house come into play and you learn more about that there's still the ambiguity of mm -hmm. the person that's haunting danny is that real or is that just in her head i don't think there's a clear answer to that so you can sort of have it both ways yeah mm -hmm. and i think that Kind of what the haunting of Bly Manor does that's different from the way most adaptations of The Turn of the Screw come at it is I feel like Bly Manor almost expects you to know the source material. Mm. So you come into it mm -hmm. expecting, waiting for the twist to be maybe the ghosts aren't real. And they kind of do the reverse of that, where the twist ends up being, yes, the ghosts are very much real, surprise. <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's a great point so it still kind of preserves that that surprise yes except for the the lingering question of the ghost of danny's ex-fiance and in the end the ghost of viola who keeps haunting her off the grounds of the house there's kind of that lingering question of is that still real or is that in Danny's head? Because the ghosts are very much like the, the, the real ghosts are very much tied to the house and to the grounds of the house and they can't leave. Right. Which is their whole, yeah, their whole deal. I actually never really considered that Viola was in Danny's head after they left Bly. So that's interesting. Oh, I, I kind of wondered that I felt like there was an element of, She's been perpetually psychologically haunted and damaged by this, so it's unclear whether hmm. it's it's really real or not. I want to mention, this is not an actual adaptation of The Turn of the Screw, but I think there's more inspiration both from The Turn of the Screw and also on Haunting of Bly Manor, and that's The Others. Have either of you seen that? That's from 2001. It's with, um, with Nicole, Nicole Kidman, Kidman, directed by... Yeah. I haven't seen that because I don't usually do scary stuff, but I remember seeing... <laughs> trailers for it and stuff and parodies of it back then <laughs> <laughs> yeah i 
I don't really love scary things, so and that was always one of the ones that I really did like because I do like ghost stories. Yeah, it's not actually that scary. So, yeah. Aaron, if you, okay. <laughs> I would encourage you to go ahead and ch- it's it's about as scary as Bly Manor in in some regards, but it also plays with the idea that you can have simultaneously real hauntings going on, plus have there be the question of what is real about the hauntings mm-hmm. and who is being haunted and who is the haunter. Haunter, sorry. <laughs> haunter. I like the H-A-U-N-T-E-U-R, haunter. <laughs> yes, haunter. And I think that we see that played out with the character of Mrs. Gross in Bonnie oh, yeah. Manor, that she becomes a figure of ambiguity, questioning reality and, and whatnot, and is our first hint that stuff is really real. And so the other's I think is a really nice precursor to that. And there's some great performances in it. Nicole Kidman and Christopher Eccleston are just brilliant and creepy without being like scary per se. So yeah, I definitely recommend that. Christopher Eccleston is in it? Yes. Wow. (laughs) Well, that's because that's pre-Doctor Who Christopher Eccleston's. It is. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So I definitely recommend that as another companion piece that isn't quite the same story per se, but I do think it's definitely inspired by it. Yeah. Cool. That reminds me that we'll have to tell everyone there are spoilers because we're gonna yes. we're gonna get into <laughs> some spoilers. <laughs> do we just wanna like jump in and, and say what Mrs. Gross's deal is? <laughs> Cause I actually thought that was <laughs> so Bly Manor is nine episodes and it's sort of weirdly it's not split, but most of the story is in like seven episodes and then you've got two sort of separate episodes. So you've got episode five, which is from Mrs. Gross's point of view and it goes back in time a little bit and sort of catches you up on what's been happening in, in her head from her point of view throughout the first four episodes. And it's a mind blowing twist because the first like 45 minutes So my housemate Eric and I watched this together and we watched like one or two episodes every night for a while. And I was sitting there the whole episode going like, what is happening? What is happening? I don't understand. And then you get to the end, the last couple minutes, and my mind was blown because it turns out that Mrs. Gross has been a ghost the whole time. And that actually kind of broke my heart too, because you really, you really come to love Mrs. Gross mm-hmm. and then to, to find out this twist that that she's actually not not only is she a ghost but no one else in the house knows that she's a ghost yet yeah is really sort of heartbreaking yeah and you're really by that point really rooting for her and Owen mm-hmm. to go mm-hmm. off to Paris together right Owen oh I love <laughs> Owen I will tell you that my husband kind of spoiled me for that because he was like she doesn't ever eat did you notice that she doesn't eat and he pinged that like early. I was like, no, it's just a, that's just a red herring. How could she be dead? She's like doing her job. She's walking around acting totally normal. Mm-hmm. Albeit kind of sad. She's a very melancholy character, but she was, you know, watching the kids and taking care of the house and doing stuff and interacting with people physically. And, and yet he was like, no, she doesn't eat. Look, watch that. Watch, she doesn't eat. She's going to be a ghost. <laughs> so thanks a lot. Thanks a lot. <laughs> thanks, Tom. <laughs> Uh, (laughs) and i think i think it becomes a really important episode but just revelation because i think 
I guess in my mind, I don't know if in your minds, but I feel like we think of ghosts as sort of non-corporeal and therefore they can't interact with the environment around them that much. Mm-hmm. But she absolutely does. And I think that sets up when Viola pops up mm-hmm. a couple episodes later and physically will drag characters down to the lake. Yeah. And I think that sets you up for that. Doing the ghost murders. The ghost murders. <laughs> yeah. Those are oh creepy and tragic. That episode, The Romance of Certain Old Clothes, which is the eighth of the nine episodes, that was super well done and beautiful mm-hmm. and tragic. And the the mental degeneration of this spirit after her death is so creepy. And the level to which her identity is erased, her memory is erased, mm-hmm. I think mirrors the idea that people die and you're remembered for a certain amount of time, but then you kind of there's going to come a point where you're not as much anymore. Mm-hmm. So does that erase your identity? Yeah. And that was just really sad. Yeah. I would like to point out that this is billed as based on the works of Henry James. Yes. Instead of just Turner of the Screw. And The Romance of Certain Old Clothes is a short story, a separate short story. And I, I read it back in uh, October or November. And it is fairly faithful, but I really enjoyed that Mike Flanagan brought that in and and molded it into the Bly Manor story. And I think Mm -hmm. every episode is named after a Henry James story. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how much of the other stories that he's brought in, but yeah, if you're a big Henry James fan, you might, KW might know more than than me. (laughs) Yeah, I can tell you the ones that I know I have read, and it's been a long time, it's been like... 20 years or so since I've read some of these. So the the Jolly Corner and the Beast in the Jungle, they're not as faithful as the Romance of Certain Old Clothes, but the Jolly Corner is an episode about the uncle, Henry, and his alcoholism. And I do remember that the Jolly Corner was kind of about some issues with that. And the Beast in the Jungle is not really that close, except that it has to do with a character who's afraid that they are sort of being haunted by something And that's a story that is often interpreted as being about Henry James' own possible homosexuality. That's not, that's kind of disputed by scholars and and whatnot. So I think that's interesting given some of the other themes that Bly Manor brings out that there is this idea that James may have been gay or at least not straight. And the fact that we have a lesbian love story at the heart of Bly Manor, I think is kind of an important way to maybe pay some homage to that idea or theory i didn't really i didn't really know there was a theory about henry james's sexuality so i was actually gonna bring it up because i i could have just looked this up but last night i was like i wonder if henry james ever got married but i'm gonna guess no nope nope Nope. henry james had i and i ended up taking a class just on james at one point where we didn't actually read the turn of the screw in that class but it was in the earlier class but he never spoke about it it was a little bit strange. And he spoke in letters of having a, what he called an obscure wound, Mm -hmm. and that that prevented him from getting married. And some people think that that was a literal physical wound of some (laughs) strange kind. But it's also thought to be metaphorical that he had the wound on his heart of knowing that he was not straight and sort of struggled with feelings. But there's also other interpretations. And again, biographical criticism is a little bit controversial and, and whatnot. So But there's definitely the real story, the real short story, The Beast in the Jungle, does have some themes that 
could lead you to, to that conclusion. And using that as the title of the last episode, even though the plots are not very similar, I think is kind of, I think, an important allusion to that idea. Yeah. And thank you for bringing up the love story that's central to it, because I thought about this a lot last night when Aaron and I watched The Innocents, because just in terms of what I prefer in the adaptations, because The Innocence is very like Freudian and weird and about <laughs> sexual repression and, and stuff like that. And I was just like, I don't, I'm uncomfortable. <laughs> <laughs> but in, in Bly Manor, you still have those themes of sexual repression, but it becomes not about Victorian repression, but about Danny's sort of compulsory heterosexuality and heteronormativity. And the fact that she's internalized all this, all these ways that people expect her to be. And then she has this trauma of making that break from that life that she knew uh-huh. and just kind of dropping herself into London, into England and starting this new life and and finding this love with Jamie. Uh-huh. So to me, that's a little bit more compelling than the weird pedophilia stuff that's <laughs> happening in the innocence yeah. yeah well and then i when i was rereading the turn of the screw this time it really stood out to me how much like i think that the sexual repression stuff is very much in the book too in that like the the governess seems to decide that peter quint and miss jessel were evil largely based on the fact that they apparently had sex and that so much of the conflict and the ambiguity in the book seems to arise from the fact that no one will ever say anything out loud, especially things involving sex and involving, like, what kind of relationship Peter Quint and Miss Jessel had, what kind of relationship, like, what the kids knew about it and how that affected them, how that affected Miles's behavior at school. What like what was going on between like the adults and the kids when they were off by themselves all the time. Mm-hmm. And, and just like there, there are specific passages where the governess will keep saying, if I could just say this out loud, then all of this would be over, but I can't because it would be such an impropriety. And and, like, really, if she had just asked Miles why he got expelled from school on, like, <laughs> in, like, chapter two, <laughs> we might have avoided all of this. <laughs> yes, yes. That's really interesting because in The Innocence, Miss Giddens, yeah, her whole thing is, oh, all of this possession will go away if Miles just says aloud that Peter Quint is haunting him, which I always yeah. was like, what? How did she jump to that conclusion? But that makes a lot of sense when you put it in that context. Yeah. Yeah. All right. That was awesome. Thank you again to Aaron Chandler for joining us. And next week, we're going to continue this conversation. So stay tuned for the rest of it. Our theme music is by Joseph McDade. You can find me on Twitter at KWTaylorWriter. And me at Carrie Gessner. And you can find us together on Twitter at PausePopPodcast. If you'd rather email us, you can do that at PositivelyPopCulture at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Stay healthy and safe. And join us next time for another episode of Pause Pop. Pop. <laughs> <laughs>